name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, amen. Uh, sorry, before we get going, um, so Fedi, it's, uh, it's noon now. What time do you, uh, what, what time, do, what time do you want me to wrap up, uh, so wrap up the talk so that we can have questions and answers after and whatever you want. One you want to, okay, so you want to end the talk at, at what, at uh, 12.45, maybe 12.45, so we can have time for a discussion, questions, answers, yeah, sounds good, okay, so let's try that again, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen, glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, amen. I'm really happy to be here with you, and I'm really happy to be talking uh, uh, with you about, uh, about, this, about this topic. And uh, Fedi and I have had uh, uh, many, many communications to try to, to give me a, an idea of what are the, the, you know, the, the needs uh, and the things that, that, that uh, you all go through and experience uh, so that we can try to be as close and as relevant as possible uh, to you. Um, and in so doing, I realized that um, a lot of the things that maybe we discussed are actually things that I deal with amongst my congregation, um, but also things that I deal with in my home. And uh, I can't say in my work, because being a priest is not a job, it's a life. But, uh, you know, uh, it's analogous. And I could certainly relate to my previous uh, work before being a priest, because I've only been a priest for uh, uh, f five years now and some, so I still remember what, what it was like when I was working. Um, and certainly I live in, in the same world as, uh, as, uh, as we, we all live in, and so when it comes to talking about the, the, the community and the world around us, I think... So I actually found that, um, that God was speaking to me a lot in preparing these talks and, and reflecting on these things. And I hope, I hope that, uh, I hope that I'm going to walk out of, 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 the, of these sessions with uh, maybe one or two pieces of new information. But I hope that I'm going to walk out of these sessions with a, a different attitude towards challenges. I hope that, um, that I'm going to change before my circumstances do. And I, I hope that uh, for you all as well. Are we, are we using PowerPoint? Or no, keynote? Uh, keynote. Okay, it just uh, disappeared. This is the first challenge of technology. Yeah. <laughs> One of my uh, uh, friends who is also a priest that I grew up with, Father Michael Tudori, I can't remember what I, I was presenting, a talk somewhere or something, and he was saying something similar happened. And he says to me, uh, he whispers in my ear, he goes, I'm convinced Satan has an IT degree. You know? <laughs> like, no matter what you do to make the technology work, you know, he's one step ahead of us, you know. He's one step ahead of us making it not work. Um, so, um, anyhow. So, sometimes, you know, sometimes... 
you're, you're going on your merry way in life and you're walking down the path which, you know, is you plan to walk and everything is going fine. You're driving up the 400 expecting to get here on time and, you know, uh, there's roadworks and there's a detour and there's construction and the detour signs are wrong and your GPS loses signal and stuff happens in life. <clears throat> Unpredictabilities, some of them are unpredictable, some of them are not. Some of them are just undesirable things that are very predictable that happen. Some of them are very predictable, I just wasn't smart enough to predict them or to ask for the advice to know that these things are going to come my way. And at some point, I'd say almost every day, I feel like I'm looking up at a mountain, like this little guy on the screen here is looking up at Mount Everest, you know, and you feel like you're just looking up at this mountain, and you're thinking to yourself like, well, what are we going to do, what are we going to do with this? Now, <clears throat> fortunately, fortunately, we, we have a God who uh, tells us something about mountains. He tells us that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain, and we're going to talk all about that. But I want to ask you a question before we get going deeper. Because a lot, a lot of what has to do with, with, uh, with challenges in life is, is how we manage ourselves. Um, and then there's also how we manage the, you know, how, how we manage to kind of navigate the, the problem, right? But when it comes to ourselves, something that we all have to take into consideration is how does this challenge, problem, issue, you know, inconvenience, whatever you want to call it, how does this make you feel, right? And um, I, want it, I, want, I want us all to just take a moment right now and think about, and think about that just for a few seconds. If you're anything like me, um, you know you know how it makes you feel. You know I know it all too well. Um, and my problem isn't knowing how it makes me feel. My problem is knowing what to do with it. And hopefully we're going to be able to talk about we're going to be able to talk about that. The first thing we're going to need is a plan, right? So here's the plan I would propose. I would propose that we get a roadmap to get us from where we are and how we feel to where we want to get to. The second thing that I suggest that we have as part of our plan is our compass. Because sometimes you, you, you can't follow the map. Sometimes there are unpredictable, there is unpredictable construction, there is unpredictable whatever on the road, and you have to, you're forced to take another route, and you want to know that you're at least, at the very least, you're going in the right general direction. Right? The difference between, I was just having this long conversation on my way up today with uh, somebody who's helping us coordinate like the food ministry on Sundays, the Lu'mat Aghabi meal, you know, right? So we we're talking about how some people can cook and some people can't, right? Some people know that, you know, when you serve avocado in an avocado salad, you have to peel the avocado and the avocado peels don't get eaten with the avocado. Some people don't, right? So I joked with him and I told him, so I'll just nod, nod my head to you and say, mm, avocado peel, you know, <laughs> and that will be our, our, uh, our code, right? 
so, sometimes you just need to know like general principles because for some reason you're forced to go off the beaten track. That's our compass. The last thing is that we need, we need the strength to be able to do all of this. Like it's nice to have instructions, it's nice to have a compass, but if I don't have the power to do it, then I'm not going to go anywhere. So my suggestion is that we apply a very simple three-step approach to everything. Get a roadmap, get some good general direction, get a compass, and have, have find the strength to do it. And we're going to talk very specifically about those things. And I'm, I'm starting this talk with a little bit more general, like general, uh, speaking generally about dealing with problems, and then we'll get to, you know, more, more specifically at home, at work, all that stuff. The next thing we need to do is name the animal, right? Is name, name the problem. And if there's multiple people involved, this is probably one of the most useful steps because one perception, person's perception of the problem may be completely different from another person's perception of the problem. Right off the top of your head, does anybody know what kind of animal this is on the screen? You tell me. Porcupine? So, so one person says a porcupine. Okay, what else, what, what else do you think it could be? An armadillo. An armadillo, okay, sure. What else could it be? Huh? I heard an anteater somewhere in there, somewhere out there. Yeah, what else could it be? <laughs> right? Yeah, it looks like some kind of dinosaur, right? So this is some kind of prehistoric scaly mammal that eats ants. It's really weird. It's called a pangolin. Um, and uh, there's like four or five or whatever different. I just looked for like a weird animal that I couldn't name, right? Because you know what? Some things come up in life that, you, that are weird to you and you have no idea what to call this. You have no idea what to do with it, right? But if you're on your own, Right, then you just need to hone in on the target and, and, and you know, apply you know, a three-step approach that we just discussed a minute ago to that. But if there's two or three or five people or a team working on something or a family trying to sort something out, right, maybe our perceptions of what the problem is are different. So we need to be on the same page if we want to work, if we want to work together. Right? So uh, we have to ask ourselves, what... What is, what is actually the issue here? What is actually the problem? What is actually the challenge? And what do we want, what do we want to achieve with it? These are all just kind of really in initial, initial steps. So right now, I'm gonna do, we're going to do another little five-second self-reflection thing. If, if the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to us right now and offered to solve one problem for you right now, what would you ask him? Like a self-reflection thing. Yeah, you get one. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, Jesus is not like, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is not as generous as Aladdin's uh, genie, you know? You get one, uh, you get, you get one, one wish, you know? Buy one, get one free. <laughs> Can I have my husband's? <laughs> so you want to laugh. Uh, when, uh, when, when Mary and I, my wife, just first started like uh, seeing each other and stuff, and we'd go to eat out, and she'd look at the menu. Mary is very, she has excellent taste, right? I, I really trust her taste, right? 
So she, uh, she'll look at the menu, and then I learned that it is in my best interest and her best interest and the best interest of my marriage to ask her, so what's catching your eye? And she'll say, well, I'm looking at this, but I'm also looking at this, right? And then she orders one, and I just order the other, right? Because it's going to be great, right? I'm a foodie, so I really like food, and I really like you know, choosing my food, but I realized even at that, it's, it, was, it was good advice, um, right? So the only problem with that, and it hasn't happened yet, is if she gets used to it, <laughs> then, then I'll never be able to order what I want. But that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> All right, give you five seconds, I'll stop talking to think. Okay, so keep that, keep that thing in mind, okay? Put it somewhere like, put it somewhere like on your desktop, right, where it's like, you know, you can see it from the corner of your eye because we may refer back to it a, a couple of times. The next really important thing for us to talk about is this, like, a highly misquoted verse from the Bible. I think this is one of the verses that is misquoted the most I've ever heard in my life from people like just all of us. And, I'm, and I put myself in the same category. Tons and tons of times we say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Okay? And, uh, and that's true. Actually, if you look at the central part of verse uh, of 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able so, Boon, I don't get it. What's your problem? Like, we just uh, colloquialized it. Like, we just made it in every, everyday words, right? Isn't that what it means? God won't give you more than what you can handle? It is. It is. But that's only the central part of the verse. There's three parts to the verse. And the first one, St. Paul and the Holy Spirit are really smart. When we first get our problem in my life, the first thing that hits me is not, oh my God, can I handle this? The first thing that hits me is, this sucks. Why me? Why am I going through this? Nobody else understands. Nobody else is going through this. Why do I have to go through this? The first thing that happens to us, I don't know if the devil does it to us, or we do it to ourselves, or whatever, right? But it certainly is not from God, is a sense that I am the only person in the universe who has ever dealt with this, or will ever have to deal with this, ever Again, right? Which is obviously, when I put it in those terms, a lie, right? That's why I'm very suspicious. Anything that's a lie that ends up in my brain and I didn't put it there, I'm very suspicious that, you know, our friend Shushu has been at work, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> when you work this much with somebody, <laughs> right? Even if he's your competitor, you give him a nickname, eh? So, uh, Right? So St. Paul is telling us, no temptation has over, overtaken you except such as is common to man. Nothing in life is going to come your way and you're going to be the first person to go through this. God is not going to invent some disaster and try it out on you. Like, that's what St. Paul is telling us. He won't use you as the guinea pig of, like, you know, torture right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Man here is, can be replaced with humankind or 
you know, it's gender neutral, right? The second part, which we all say and we all believe, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And the third part is also we do ourselves a disservice by not, by not mentioning it, not saying it, because that's the action. So St. Paul dealt with the feeling, then he dealt with the problem, then he, and then he's giving us the solution. Who will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it? St. Paul is telling us, when you enter a problem, start looking for the exit signs, right? By a building code for places of gathering, whatever, there has to be at least two emergency exits. They have to be signposted. They have to have, I don't know, all this stuff, right? Right? Why? So that like, you know, if there's a fire at one exit, there's another exit that people can exit from, right? They have to be clearly indicated. Do you think God is less, has less forethought than uh, the building code people? Or God is less diligent than the building code people? Of course not, right? So God, as He gives us, as He allows a, t- a, a, a trial in my life, as He puts, already the exit sign is there. Theologically, one example. So, when Adam and Eve, when God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden, says, Adam, where are you? What does Adam say? I hid because... Huh? I was naked, right? God says, how'd you know you were naked, right? And, he said, and the whole conversation happens, and then psh, they get the boot out of paradise, right? They get the boot out of paradise. What does God do before they leave paradise, right? What does he do? No trick questions here. Yeah, he clothes them. What does he clothe them in? Sheepskins. Where do he get the sheepskins from? No trick questions. A sheep that he sacrificed. It was the first time that they ever saw blood. It was the first time that they saw death. They saw a clear association between disobedience, death, disobedience, shame, death, God covering them, the loss of their communion with God. For them, that was clear as mud. It was super clear, it was super that this leads to this, leads to this, all these things, they come together. It's like a domino rally, you press the button, you know, two for one, five for one. You know, you, you, get, you take this, you get this, 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 this. God wanted that to be clear to them. Why? Why did, why did, why did, God, why did God sacrifice, make a sacrifice, a, a blood sacrifice? He wanted to show them the way. Show them the way, yes, yeah. Yeah, which is? Yes, which is? Jesus, right? He wanted to train their eye, right? And that's why he taught Adam, by tradition we know this, not that it's written in scripture, right? That he got, God taught Adam to have an annual sacrifice. An annual... Looking at the universe here, right? We have an estimation of the number of stars. So the number, it's, it's just an estimation, right? There's an estimation that there's 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. And the Milky Way has 100 billion stars. So if the Milky Way, our galaxy, is average, then how many stars are there in the universe? Well, one with 24 zeros after that. That's an estimation of how many stars could possibly be in the universe 
from our observations of the universe. Now there's all this like, like, you know, like physics stuff about like multiverse and, you know, multiple universes happening all at the same time and multiple versions of our universe at different time points. And, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy, right? Now think about what King David says, and we, we, we say this in, in, in our evening prayers and our compline prayers. He counts the number of stars, he calls them all by name. Those, those one zero 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 cab tire, twenty-four zeros of stars, he knows every single one of them by name. So it's not far-fetched for God to say that he counts the number of our hairs and he calls, you know, he counts the number of stars, he calls them all by name. Every single one of them. He can tell you where they are, he can tell you how big they are, he can tell you... God is aware of a level of detail which completely blows our mind. The first, the first thing I need to realize is that, like, in all my life, the biggest problem that I have is just part of my life. And then I'm like me, here in like southern Ontario, in like North America, on this little planet called Earth, which is like a fraction, a minute fraction size of the sun, which is one of all of these stars. So my problem compared to God is like, in actuality, is infinitesimally small. Like, so it's unmeasurably small, my problem to him. My problem to me is Mount Everest, right? That's granted. That's why I wanted to start with how does it make you feel, right? Because St. Paul starts with how does it make you feel by telling us, don't worry, I know you feel like you're alone. I know you feel like nobody understands. I know you feel like I know. But don't worry, you're not. It's not like that, right? Now, the best part of the best part of all of this, the best part of all of this is the verse that comes right before that. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He calls the number. Of st- he knows the number of stars. He calls them all by name, right? In our compline prayers, Psalm one forty-seven, or right in the Igbeam, right. That means that in all of his bigness, in all of how amazingly enormous God is, he doesn't only have my biggest problem in mind. He has every one of my hurts in my life. He has every, every time I was rejected as a kid in school, every time I you know, didn't do as well on an exam as I wanted to, every, all these things that now, when I think about them, I realize that whatever, life goes on, right? Every one of those things, God is holding them in His hands. You know, uh, I was so happy when I, um, when I discovered King David saying in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 11 and 12, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. Does that sound like anything? Have you heard those words before? Yours is the power, the glory, the right? That's where it comes from. 
I don't know if that's where it comes from. I don't know the history of the hymn. But it sounds a lot. It sounds very similar, right? It sounds very similar, right? As Jesus is being crucified on the cross, we're telling Him, yours is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. As the most horrifying experience that could ever happen to a human is happening, we're telling Him, yours is the power and the glory and the blessing and the majesty. We're telling Him that no matter, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, you're, you are still the... What's the word we always use? Pantokrator, right? What does that mean? Pan, like everything, all things. Krator comes from like the same like, like, like word as like, for example, like democracy. Kratocracy, right? Right, which means what? Like what does democracy mean? It means like the people rule, right? So it means to rule. So Pantokrator means like if we break up its like root words, means the, the ruler of all things. Like the, like that's why we don't translate it like to English, like to Almighty. Like sometimes we write Almighty because we feel like Pantokrator is too long and heavy to say, you know, or or or, or in Arabic Dabat al Kul, you know. But yeah, my Arabic isn't well enough to know if, if that is a, an an excellent translation of it or not. The idea is the one who is sovereign over all things, ruler over all things, like in full complete command. Of all things, that's our God. So I need to start there. And I need to start there for a very specific reason, because if I'm going to face Mount Everest, what seems to me like Mount Everest, I'm not going to argue with you that, it, that it's Mount Everest, because you're the one standing at the base of that mountain, not me, right? If I have any hope of dealing with that mountain, if I'm going to get out of bed in the morning, knowing that that mountain is waiting for me, I need to start from a place of strength. I need to start from a place of power. Otherwise, there's no hope. Otherwise, there's no hope. There's no hope for me at all, right? I need to realize that he who is in me is stronger than he who is in the world. I need to realize that if God is for us, who can stand against us? I need to realize that what shall separate me from the love of Christ? I need to realize that Jesus tells us, the works that I do, you will do greater, that they may know that you sent me. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that God wants us to do greater works than what Jesus did? Yes or no? Maybe a topic for another retreat, right? I wish I could apply this in all my life, right? Never start shopping. Never start you know, trying to get something by going shopping. Start by looking at your budget. Uh, we need a new uh, car or another car. So I called up, uh, my, you know, uh, an old friend of mine who, uh, who like, is in the used car business. I know him and trust him and love him very much. And I told him, we need a new car, or like another car, or whatever, just something to get me from point A to point B, you know, nothing fancy, whatever. He says, okay, well, what's your budget? I'm like, I don't know, what's out there? So he starts sending me all kinds of things, you know, we got, guess what? Nowhere. Of course, right? Why? Because he doesn't know what he's looking for, right? I need to start by doing an assessment of my budget, right? I need to start by looking at, at, at where, where am I and what resources do I have with me? I have God with me. I have God with me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? That makes us like David who faced Goliath, right? 
that makes us, like it says in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Right? That makes us, also from Psalm 147 that we were quoting earlier, He does not delight in the strength of a horse, He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and in those who hope in His mercy. God knows you have Mount Everest in front of you. God knows I have Mount Everest in front of me. And God doesn't take pleasure in how good I am at squashing Mount Everest. Because God can do that, like, not with His pinky. God can do that, like, with nothing. God takes pleasure in what? Those who fear Him and in who hope in His mercy. Now we got step two. We got the attitude. What should my position be in front of Mount Everest? Spread my chest, pull out my muscles? Rather the opposite. The position in front of Mount Everest is on my knees, hands clasped, asking for God's mercy. So we find here that, we find here that we're, getting, we're getting all of our answers from Scripture. Just a little aside, what is Scripture? In our Orthodox teaching, as I understand it, and Abuna is much more learned than me, he can correct us, our Orthodox understanding of Scripture is not only the Bible. Is the Bible? Scripture is what? Is the written revelation of God. Right? The written revelation of God. How has God revealed Himself to the church of the ages? He's revealed it in His, in his in written word, the Holy Bible. He's, written, he's revealed it in our holy tradition. He's revealed it in the liturgy. He's revealed it in the sayings of the fathers, he's revealed it in the lives of the saints, right? In all of these different things. So, I need to go there, I need to go there to find my roadmap, right? Next up, I need my compass, right? My compass is the living Holy Spirit living inside of me. You know, people commonly say, you know, like you have to set your compass to true north and all this stuff, right? I agree, I agree. But my compass is not my conscience. Conscience is good. The Holy Spirit is different. We talk about that in the questions if you want or whenever, right? I need to to set, I need to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit, and it's hard, or it seems hard. I don't think it's hard, but I think it's very intuitive, actually. I think that's one of the things that Jesus says, like, let us be like little children. Because if if we kind of be like little children, we'll get it, right? Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, Right? I started preparing these talks in a completely different direction and I ended up here, right? Because we have to follow God. We have to follow God. We have to to accept that there are some things along the path that I don't know about. So I'm, I'm not saying we don't make a plan and we don't draw and we don't do the best, we don't do our best with the plan. No, we do the best we can with the plan. We do the best we can with the roadmap. But then, there's going to be stuff we didn't account for. Like, expect the unexpected, like they say. And the Holy Spirit is, is, the, one, is the one who can guide us in those moments. 33 different verses. We're not going to go through all of them. Just the fact that He empowers us. He, he is the power. He is the power that pushes us forward. Right? He is that wind 
which blows in our sails. Look, a sailor can't move a boat nearly as well as the wind can. What does the sailor have to do? He has to know what direction the wind is going and what direction he wants to go and he has to throw up his sails right at the right moment. So let us pray that God can teach us how to cooperate with Him. Right? I was reading just in my own personal readings, like not for this, just for me. Earlier in the week, I was reading uh, uh, some commentaries on Genesis, just the verse, first couple of verses. I read like three, four chapters. And it became so evident to me, just from the first two verses in the Bible, that all God wants from us, all God wants from us is to cooperate with Him. Like God is going in this direction, I'm constantly trying to, I'm constantly trying to go my direction, but God's direction. Right? Like you're going, God is going northeast, and I'm going north, so let me see if I can get God to carry me, you know, and I try to kind of swing God to my, you know, right? My direction. I know if any of you are in leadership positions at work and stuff, you know what it's like to work with somebody like that. Annoying, <laughs> right? Because you, 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 you see, you know, you see the big picture, they see the, they see the little picture. You see, they see the trees, you see the forest. Both are important. Both are important. But at the end of the day, you're trying to get somewhere. And um, God, has, God has it. He's got it. Right? He's got it. All He's looking for is for me to just, to just go with Him in that direction. To throw up my sails in His direction. The direction that His wind is blowing. Right? Not to try to get the northwest, northeast wind to push me north. To just accept the wind is going northeast. Let me go with Him. Right? And God is very obvious I think in our lives, what direction he's, he's going. Just, I like sometimes to take quotes from people that are outside, you know, of our tradition, if they're saying what is, uh, you know, what, what is acceptable to us, right? So, the, 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 the same wind blows on us all, the winds of disaster, opportunity, and change. Therefore, it is not the blowing of the wind, but the setting of the sails that will determine our direction in life. So, let's get specific. Let's talk about home in the remaining 10 minutes that we have, right? The two most common causes of marital conflict are finances and intimacy, hands down. They account for at least 80% of marital conflict. Then come other things, children and all these other things. But most of the time, the, all the other things lead to a conflict in one of these two departments, right? So how are we going to deal with this? Number one, let us all accept that conflict is inevitable. Abuna, can I ask Otsak a question and put you on the spot? Do you ever have any conflict in your marriage? Absolutely. <laughs> do I have conflict in my marriage? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I do almost all the marriage, conflict, marriage, counseling, whatever I do. I'm not a counselor, professional counselor, but just accompanying people, supporting them in their marriages. I do almost all of it by showing them, showing people how Mary and I go through the same thing. Now, how we deal with it and how you're going to deal with it may be different, right? But the first thing I do is what St. Paul does and tell you, hey, you're not alone. Everybody deals with conflict. So, 
you know, you know, and I say this in our marriage prep stuff, you know, I tell them, you're gonna, if you haven't had any conflict, you're gonna have some. And they actually suggest that it's ideal, not that you can control it, that you have your first major conflict prior to marriage. Because the first thing that comes to your mind when you have that, that major fallout is, oh my God, this is the end, right? And if you're, if you've been dating for two weeks, right? If you've been dating for two weeks, it's like, well, this really stinks. I really liked her. I really liked him. But, you know, the stakes are low, right? If, like, you're engaged, you know, right? Now there's, like, you know, like a, you know, a, 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 you know, a several-digit dollar rock on somebody's hand that, like, the stakes have gone up, right? You know? If you're married, then there's, like, a father-in-law, right? <laughs> you know? If you have kids, oh my goodness, you know, now we're not talking about like alimony, only alimony, child support, dude, you're never retiring, right? <laughs> right, so the stakes go up, so it's good, you know, it's good, it's good for us to learn how to deal with conflict as early as possible, because guess what? It's going to keep coming your way for life. Now, the good news is this, if you learn how to deal with it well, then the conflict that's like dynamite that can blow your relationship to bits, can be dynamite that blows your relationship forward. There's nothing that promotes intimacy more than sincere apology after deep hurt. And you may or may not have experienced that already, uh, but many couples I speak to have, have experienced that. They achieve new levels of, of emotional connectedness and intimacy after they've gone through some deep conflict, but they've gone through it well, right? So let us commit that we're not going to avoid conflict. In fact, we're going to see it as dynamite that can blow our relationship forward. Back in the olden days in, here in Canada, North America, right? There was, you know, a, there's a logging industry. There still is, of course, right? And they chopped down the logs and they would just toss them down the river, right? And sometimes the logs would get stuck along a bend, right, in the river. Now, the loggers would then get down there, they'd run down there as fast as they could with long poles and they'd try to push them, they'd try to push them along in the river. When they can't anymore, they can't clear the log jam, what's going to happen? As, you know, traffic on the highway, as the traffic builds up, it's going to hit a critical point where it's going to then start to grow exponentially, right? Before it hits that point, they've got to clear that log jam. Otherwise, they're going to lose all the wood, right? So what, are, what would they do? At that point, if they can't clear the log jam in any other way, they'd light a bunch of dynamite, throw it in the river. You know what? They're going to lose two days work, worth of work, but they're not going to lose it all, right? And the logs that don't get destroyed, what happens to them? They get blown down the river faster than you can imagine, right? So, conflict in our lives can either be destructive or constructive, depending on how we deal with it. So, let's talk just a little bit about that, right? So, another question for you, right? Do we seek peace at any price, right? There are sort of five modes of dealing with conflict, four that are very common, one that is not as common, right? One is to withdraw, kind of, you know, whenever there's conflict, I just pull back, right? I don't engage, I don't discuss, I just, right? The second is the opposite, is to win at all costs, right? So we're going to discuss this until we're done discussing it and until you see things the way I see them because that's what makes sense, obviously, right? 
The third is to yield. So I, I, I'll enter into the discussion, but after a varying degree of time, I, I'm willing to just, to just give in for the sake of peace, right? And the fourth is compromise, which is, you know what? Every time we get into one of these conversations, we end up talking and talking and talking till two in the morning, and we never get to a conclusion. So, this time we'll do what you want, next time we'll do what I want, right? Compromise. People say marriage is about compromise. I strongly disagree, right? And we can discuss that some other time. And the fifth one is to resolve. The fifth one is to take a step back and see, what do you say? What do I say? What are the positive things that you're saying? What are the positive? And find a new solution, which will may or may not include the two solutions that were initially proposed. So take a moment now, five seconds, you know, to see, are you a withdrawer, a winner at all costs, a yielder, or a compromiser? Right? And you can't be a resolver on your own because it, resolving takes two. So I'm just talking about you and your character. We all start off in one of these four and we want to work towards being a resolver and we're going to talk about that. Give you five seconds. Okay, I, I gave you a little more than five seconds because I saw there was some conversation. <laughs> the husbands were looking over to their wives saying, what am I, am I, am I, what am I, am I, right? The wives were saying, <laughs> I can say these things because my wife is uh, in England. She's an, an ocean away. Uh, say whatever I want. <laughs> I'm going to see her on Tuesday and this recording must be destroyed before then. <laughs> the inevitable thing is that is that conflict always arises from one of two places. I shouldn't say always, but almost always. It almost always arises from either anger or pride. One of the two. Oftentimes one person is doing one and the other person is doing the other. Anger is not always bad. Anger is, you know, a, 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 a colloquial definition, a layman's definition of anger is an intense or strong displeasure towards a stimulus. Right? Something... That gives me an intense feeling of displeasure, right? Jesus got angry, right? But I think that his anger was maybe a little bit different than mine. Righteous anger is anger that has to do with something and that specifically does not have to do with me. So there's a million things that can make anger righteous or unrighteous, but in broad strokes... If I'm part of the reason why I'm angry, then that's highly unlikely to be righteous anger. It's highly likely to be selfish anger, right? When Jesus cleansed the temple. He was not 
personally offended. It wasn't a personal offense against him. He was, like the disciples said, zeal for your house has he eaten me up. Right? He was, he was zealous for the Lord. When we look at God and we look at God's anger, we find a truth that anger and love are very intimately associated. You can't love something without also having the potential to be angry about it. You love your children? What if some kid at school beats your kid up? You going to get angry? You're going to get really angry, right? Yeah, exactly. And some kid's going to get a beating, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Because I love, I love my child, right? You can't love something a lot without having the potential to get angry about it. God's love and His anger are a, a different talk. We can discuss that at some point if you want to. So what to do with our anger? The first thing, like, the, like conflict, is to admit it. And in admitting it, I admit it to myself, and then I admit it to God. I'm going to skip a slide here. Um, I admit it to myself, and then I admit it to God. Okay, I'm going to share with you, uh, forget the slides and forget everything, I'm going to share with you the most useful thing I have read or heard about conflict resolution. We do our marriage prep downtown, at the church downtown, for all of the whole community, like the whole, like the whole area of the church. We tell people at church to invite their friends, their colleagues, if you have a friend who's in a, uh, even if they're not Christian, we get atheists, we get people of other religions. It's a great way to introduce them to the church. They come to church like for six weeks in a row. They get to know us, they get to know me, you know. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a great kind of backdoor to the church and to evangelism. And it breaks, the one thing that breaks my heart the most is I can't share this with them. Because unless you're Christian and have a relationship with God, what I'm going to say now is not going to make sense. But what I'm going to say now is the one silver bullet that works to resolve conflict every single time. Every single time it works. I'm always like uh, suspicious when people say something works every single time, you know, because, you know, especially if there's like a hundred books written about it, why didn't, why didn't somebody just say this is the answer, you know, right? But I tell you the truth. I read this in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a book prior to marriage, like just reading for my own self, like before I was a priest, before any of this stuff. And I thought it worked so well that I thought that the whole chapter of the book was about this. When I went back, I found that it was just like one sentence in one paragraph, right? But man, was it inspired by the Holy Spirit. Look, all conflict or almost all conflict is rooted in either anger or pride, both of which are a sin. Both of which were a sin against God before they were ever a sin against my partner, against my spouse, my husband, my wife, right? So, King David, after he slept with a woman, killed her husband, put his entire army at risk. You think Uriah was the only one who died on the front lines when the front lines went out and then they retreated so that Uriah would die? I'm sure hundreds, maybe thousands of other men died, right? abused his power given to him by God. All of these people he sinned against. When Nathan comes and tells him, you are the man, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
He sees that his sin against God outweighs murdering hundreds, maybe thousands of people, adultery, lying, covering up, using his uh, authority, God-given authority in a wrong way, all of these things. He sees that his sin against God is far greater than all of these things. How can I see that my sin against God, my pride, which is my pride against my spouse or my anger against my spouse, is a greater sin against God than the sin I did than I, the, the sin I did to my spouse, especially when I'm still seething with anger against my spouse. Let's be honest, okay? I'm not talking about like three weeks later when I'm going to confession. I'm talking in the moment when I'm, when I'm extremely angry with my spouse or extremely how dare he, how dare she, and so on. How can I get to a place where I'm like King David in Psalm 50? On the spot, Nathan tells him, you are the man, and he confesses his sin. And so we know that Psalm 50 is associated with that, with that confession. This is what I do. When we have a conflict, I try to do this, because it works every time. I try, before we start talking about our conflict, I try to go to my room and close the door. And I get down on my knees, and I remember a conversation I had on my wedding day before we walked out of the church. So like at the end of the prayers, before the, the recession, like before walking out. Had a conversation very short one. Yeah, very short one. My father-in-law walks up to me. This is my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, by the way. I love them dearly, although I make fun of them all the time. You know, what's the difference between outlaws and in-laws? Outlaws are wanted. <laughs> right? How did Adam know he was in paradise? He looked left, he looked right, he couldn't find his mother-in-law anywhere. Right? Don't worry, I say these jokes to my in-laws every single time I see them. Uh, that's my father-in-law and my mother-in-law on the screen there, whom I love dearly. I love them uh, like my own parents. Um, and my father-in-law walks up to me with tears in his eyes, and he takes me by the shoulders, and he tells me, Mary is my daughter, with tears in his eyes. And he says, please take care of her. So this is, I'm just telling you what I do. I go to my room, seething with anger. And I remember that moment. And I remember that it wasn't only Dr. Naim, my father-in-law, who said that to me. Who can't see me right now. And he can't see what's in my heart. Maybe even Mary can't see what's in my heart. But my Father in Heaven has entrusted me with His daughter. And this is how I feel towards her now. God trusted me with His daughter. Dr. Naeem lives in London, England. Mary got married, moved away immediately to come here to live with me. Her dad had met me like four times or five times in his life or something. And he just handed me his daughter. He trusted me. God has trusted me all the more. What have I done with that trust? God knows. What have I done with that trust? That necessarily, without a shadow of a doubt, every single time, brings me to my knees and brings tears to my eyes and makes me tell God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I didn't honor the trust that you trusted me with. I'm sorry that you gave me 
you gave me your precious daughter to love her, to care for her. If you need help, print out the marriage commandments. Take a screenshot of it off Coptic Reader on your phone. Do something, right? To hasten to do everything that pleases her heart. How many times did I do that today, this week? Did I at all? Hasten means like, like, I'm speaking to the husbands, right? Speaking to me, right? That means like if I know she wants something, like I disobeyed the commandment if she had to ask for it. Like Mary likes to have a cup of tea every morning. It's not a surprise, <laughs> right? <laughs> she's like, uh, you know, she's been pregnant and she's been nursing on and off, on and off all this time, right? She can't fast like in Qatar. She's like, you know, she's not going to fast till four in the afternoon, right? Why don't I make her a cup of tea in the morning? I know, so why don't I do it? Right? The church entrusted me. God entrusted me. And this is what I've done with this trust. I owe God an apology. Then I go talk to Mary. What do you think our conversation sounds like? You did and you should have and why did you? And of course not. Of course not. Once we repent, everything changes. Everything changes. Everything changes. Real quickly, we start trying to, we start, we stop trying to tackle each other and we start trying to tackle the problem together. Instead of me against her, it becomes me with her. Okay, let's figure out how we're going to deal with this, right? We have differences. We have differences. I'm very relationship oriented. I can sit and chat with you for four hours. Mary is very task oriented. She gets things done, right? So what are her strengths? What are mine? How can we, how can we, you know, on a bright blue sky day, on a day like today, when you got nothing to worry about, right? And everything is good and you're on a retreat and you're away from the demands of life. Talk about what, what are the difference? What are you good at? What are you good at? Right? And when, in what circumstances would it be good for you to take the lead? In what circumstances may it be better for me to take the lead? Right? And then the timing is everything. Different people have different, like, uh, you know, concepts of the timing. But generally, generally, it's good to deal with conflict pro promptly. There's two parts to every conflict. There's like a, like, there's like a psycho-emotional part, right? There's all the angst. There's all the fighting and the anger and the, right? That's one part of it. But then there's a very real practical thing that caused us to get into the fight in the first place, right? Are we going to go, whose place are we going to, who, where are we going to go for Christmas, my place, the in-laws, whatever, right? There's a, and, there's a, and it needs to be resolved. Like, we need to know where we're going to go for Christmas or whatever, right? So, my suggestion is that, that we all commit to dealing with that psycho-emotional part of the conflict as soon as possible, Right? which involves the repentance and involves a face-to-face -face conversation, most, most preferably, and involves, and, and involves uh, uh, forgiveness, right? Now, the rest of it, you know, I read this in another book. I was talking about the 10 to 10 rule, right? Maybe it's best between 10 p.m. and to 10 a.m. not to discuss this stuff because... Most of us are not in, you know, our best shape. I have a, a friend of mine at work. He wasn't Christian, uh, but uh, he had the pillow rule, right? If somebody's touching a pillow, we can't try to start resolving all of life's big, big issues, right? 
I'm like, so, so you've, you've securely planted pillows, like, <laughs> he's very tall, right? His, his arm span was like at least two meters, you know? I was like, so ev- within two meters of everywhere in your condo, there's a pillow, right? <laughs> right? So, <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, there's something to be said for choosing the optimal time to resolve, to, 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 to finding solutions. There's something to be said for getting, getting the pain out of the way as soon as possible. You figure out how you're going to do it. Have a discussion about how you want to do this, right? And then, forgive me husbands again, like, uh, sorry, and take another jab at us, right? You know, when it talks about the husband being the leader, that means that the husband is supposed to be the first to say, I'm sorry. That means the husband is the first to stop saying, I'll apologize if she apologizes, right? So I'll apologize, she apologizes. So who's going to apologize first? I don't know. Somebody, right? The Holy Spirit. And then we'll all apologize, right? In a cartoon my daughter watches, like Peppa Pig, right? Peppa and Susie, like the little pig and the little lamb, who are best friends, get into a fight, right? And so Daddy Pig goes to them, okay, I'm going to count to three. And on three, you apologize, right? But who's going to do that for us, right? We have to, we can't, you know, right? So that, that's the husband's job, right? Then this. And then finally, my last, uh, my last slide, every conflict, every conflict should end with an act of forgiveness. Not because you have to. Not because Jesus commanded it. Not because it's the only thing that Jesus commented on in the Lord's Prayer. Not because of all of those which are very good reasons in and of themselves. Because you and I stand to, to benefit the most from that forgiveness. Because that forgiveness brings you to a new level of genuinity, a new level of honesty, a new level of being your, your real and raw self with your partner, which is the, the m- most significant catalyst for intimacy. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.